Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when you read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. This evening, for a few moments, I want you to Concentrate your thoughts on verse 4 and 5. Verse 6, of course, cannot be separated. It gives the subject of which Paul has been speaking, but primarily to look at verse 4 and 5. Paul says here, Whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Last week in Ballymacashan we looked at verse 3, and we noted the difference between verse 3 and verse 4. In verse 3, Paul talks about how he learned his theology. You might be surprised to learn that, unlike many of us, Paul didn't go to Irish Baptist College, didn't learn his theology in a seminary or a Bible college. Paul was an apostle. And like all the apostles, he was taught by the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, if you want to turn back for a moment just to the book of um, Galatians chapter 1 and look at verse 11, you'll see how he deals with this himself. In Galatians 1 and verse 11, he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, later on in that same chapter, he goes into how this happened, and he goes into great detail that uh, He was called by God's grace. He had been separated from his mother's womb for this work. God had revealed Christ to him at the Damascus Road. But then thereafter, he didn't go to Jerusalem and learn his theology at the school there. In fact, he went into Arabia, verse 17. And three years later, he went to Jerusalem. And one of the interesting things that I tried to point out to the folks last week, and you can read the notes of that on the website, if you're interested in doing that, uh, you can look up the 
Just search for the Semper Reformata podcast, find the website, look for last week's notes. But one of the things that I pointed out was the interesting fact that the disciples had spent three years with Christ in the school of Christ, becoming apostles, learning to do the work that they were going to do, learning Christian theology at the hands of the most superb teacher, the Lord Jesus, the Son of God himself. Paul then tells us that he, instead of going to Jerusalem and learning from the apostles who were there, he spent time with Christ. He learned it by direct revelation, three years with Christ in a remote place. So Paul didn't go to a seminary or to a Bible college because Paul was an apostle the very last apostle. And like all of the apostles, he was taught by Jesus. In fact, if you read the qualifications of the apostle who was marked to replace um, the, 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 the traitor Judas in the book of Acts, you'll see that one of the qualifications for that is that he had to have spent time with Christ. He had to be a witness of the resurrection. He had to have been taught by Christ himself. Those are the qualifications for the apostles. And that's why there are no apostles nowadays. And that's why those who claim to be apostles are in fact very often nothing other than apostates. That's a summary of last week. But Paul now has discovered through this direct revelation from God, a great mystery. Look at verse 3 and verse 4 and contrast them. He talks here about how God speaks to him by revelation. But when he talks to the, or writes rather, to the people at Ephesus, he doesn't ask them or tell them to look for a similar revelation. He tells them in verse 4 that they are to read something. So Paul learned directly from the Lord Jesus by direct revelation, and he expects us to read what he has written. Verse 3, As I wrote afore in a few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. We've been doing that to this very day. We have been reading the words of Christ, uh, the words of Paul, and hearing in the words of Paul, the direct revelation that he received from God. That is why the scriptures are the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God. Right, verse 4. What did Paul learn? He learned about something here called the mystery of Christ. And that's where I want to start this evening. What is this great mystery? Paul's referring to this amazing revelation that he has received. Revelation about the mystery of Christ. Now let's remember what we learned about a mystery a few weeks back, if you can cast your mind back. A mystery in the biblical sense is not a problem that we must work out. Like a detective seeking to solve the mystery of someone who has committed a crime. A biblical mystery is entirely different from that. A biblical mystery is something about God or about the ways of God or about the purposes, the will of God that we could not understand through human reasoning alone. 
something that we only know because God has revealed it to us. Remember, Jesus, when teaching his disciples, told them why he taught in parables. He said to his disciples, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are without, all these things are done in parables. So for those of us who are his disciples, we have seen the mystery. We have it here in the scriptures. Paul, in this form of direct revelation from God, and us in revelation through God's written word, the Bible, we learn about the mystery of Christ. And what is that? Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us here. He talks about both a general mystery and a particular mystery. Now, what does he mean by general mystery? Well, I'm sure that there are people who are outside tonight cutting their grass and just back from the shops, people who are washing their cars, and they see you coming down to this church uh, on a lovely summer evening like this, and they think, well, there's a bit of a mystery. Why are those people going to church? Night? Why couldn't they go going to Port Rush? A nice walk on the beach. There's a mystery, isn't it? Um, they can't understand Christianity. They, thinks, they think Christianity is strange, mysterious. For those of us who have read the Bible and experienced the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we understand what the mystery of Christ is. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3 and 16, says, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It certainly is. And yet we have had it revealed to us. Here it is. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. We know all of those things, don't we? There's no mystery there. We know that the Lord Jesus came into this world in the birth of a baby at Bethlehem. The God came into this world in the person of his only begotten Son. We know that the Holy Spirit was with him. We know that the Holy Spirit proved his righteousness before God, before all of the world. We know about his sinlessness before God, and we know about uh, we know that before all men, we know that he came to be preached, to preach among the nations. We know that the message of the gospel, when preached among the nations, radically changed the world as men and women came to Christ and lived for him. We know about his resurrection from the dead. We know about his ascension into glory. For those of us who know and love the Lord, there is no mystery in these things. The greatest mystery of all is why, isn't it? Is why. Why would God send his son to die for a sinner like me? That's the mystery. Why did God send his perfect son to live a perfect life and to die a terrible, painful death for a worthless sinner? And in Christ, through the word of God, the mystery has unfolded before us. He did it to demonstrate his own glory. In Ephesians 1 and verse 6, it's all to the praise of the glory of his grace, 
wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, the great mystery, is why did he die for me? Why did he do that? God saves unworthy sinners. General mystery. The mystery that God would choose out his elect and set his love upon them and redeem them at great cost. But there's a particular mystery that Paul talks about here. It's really an aspect of that great general mystery. It is that God has revealed to Paul that one day God would bring all his redeemed people, whoever they are, and put them on display, demonstrating to the whole universe his greatness and his love and his mercy and his kindness. And that was the great mystery that was hard to understand. We read about it in verse 6, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, that there should be only one body, one church, one people of God, and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The mystery of Christ. But then look at verse 5. And look here at the extent of Old Testament revelation and understanding of that mystery. Paul says here, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. Now, if we were simply to stop there, we would be led astray. Paul's not saying that he was ever the first to understand this mystery. This mystery has been revealed to him. But there is ample Old Testament evidence that a mystery like that was already known. The mystery that God wanted all the people of the whole wide world to worship him to worship the one who created them and sustained them. Plenty of evidence in the Old Testament that the saints of that era knew that the claims of the Creator extended well beyond Israel, who were the people, who were the nation, to whom he had made his redemptive purpose known. So think of the nation of Israel as a kind of a visual aid to the whole wide world demonstrating the wonderful deliverance that God would obtain for his people. Let's do some Bible study. Open your Bible. Let's see one of God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God gives us Amazing promise that the Gentile nations would be blessed in his seed. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. And then in Genesis 22 and 18, that's reiterated. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So there's a promise made right back at the very beginning of Israel's history. And in the Psalms, many times do we sing Psalm 72. I love the way it's 
It's done in Scottish metre, and I'm going to read it to you. His name forever shall endure, last like the sun it shall. Men shall be blessed in him, and blessed all nations shall him call. All nations blessed in the name of the Lord. The prophet Isaiah has similar language. He talks about Israel as being a light unto the Gentiles. Now open your Bible again and look at Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. Talking about the coming Messiah. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Maybe when you were a child, you went to a children's meeting, and they did a sword drill. Isaiah 49 and verse 6. And he said, it is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation to the end of the earth. All throughout the minor prophets, the same theme runs. Hosea 1 and verse 10. The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are sons of the living God. An expectation that God would make people who were outside the covenant to be his sons. Amos says similar things. So does Malachi for the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same. My name shall be great among the Gentiles. There's plenty of Old Testament evidence, no doubt whatsoever, that the Old Testament writings from Moses and the prophets were well aware that God had a plan for the redemption of the Gentile nations. Let's go back to Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. But then he qualifies that. As it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. There's something different about it now. Now what would be different? Well, First of all, God has given Paul this special revelation that he's only going to have one people, one church. You see, the Old Testament writers thought that the Gentiles coming to God would be through their conversion to Judaism. That God would bring the Gentile nations into Israel by being subsumed in submission to the Israelites So Isaiah in chapter 60 and verse 13 says, The Gentiles shall come to thy light, expecting that Israel would bring the Gentile nations in and we would all become Jews. But what these 
Old Testament worthies did not comprehend was that Pentecost would come and God would pour out his Holy Spirit upon his church and that old order of Israel, a nation uniquely blessed of God, would cease to be alone. That it would end permanently as a national entity. That God's church would contain converted Jews and converted Gentiles. That all of Israel would be saved. Some evangelicals can't grasp this point. A couple of weeks ago, we were up in Port Rush direction and I met a couple, my wife and I were in, went into a cafe for a cup of coffee and we met a couple whom we haven't seen for many, many years and we sat down and immediately we began this spiritual conversation. It's great when you sit in a coffee shop and you start talking about the Lord's return, isn't it? And the people at the next table have to get up and walk out because they don't want to hear about the Lord's return. Left all their food behind too. Amazing how when you talk about how the world's going to end in a very short period of time, perhaps it affects people. This man began to tell me about how the signs of the times were being fulfilled. I'm always wary of that. We're not to be seekers of signs. And he was telling me, uh, he gave me this wonderful story about how God is blessing the nation of Israel. How the Jews in Israel are having wonderful blessings from God. Their crops are growing in the fields and thriving and prospering. And the the fields of the Arabs beside them, they're barren. There's nothing growing in them. And I'm sitting there thinking, but that's just because the Jews have confiscated all the fertilizer. Because the nation of Israel, as it is at the minute, is a corrupt nation. Because the nation of Israel is not a godly nation. Far, far, far from it. In fact, the nation of Israel promotes and encourages homosexuality. Yet evangelicals are still looking for somehow that nation of Israel to be part of God's People without repentance. I can't understand that. That old national order was abolished in Christ. It's no longer needed. And in its place is this entirely new organism called the church in which Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, all of those who have come to God by faith in Christ alone, are on an equal footing. What did Paul write in Galatians 3 and 28? There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul was saying differently than the Old Testament prophets is a complete complete and total and permanent fusion of the two into one, in essence creating one single entity out of two opposing and conflicting elements in Ephesians chapter 2 and 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. For to make 
in himself of twain one new man. God doesn't have two people. God only has one people. The redeemed. The redeemed of the Lord of every age, of every tribe, of every color. God, Paul's revelation was completed by the fact that God told him in this time of learning that he would have one church. And so in verse in verse 6 he says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. Same body. Of course, Paul was living in the days when these prophecies were being fulfilled. It must have been exciting. God revealed to him that all these ancient prophecies only partly understood by the people who wrote them and who had read them at times past. They were coming to pass right before his very eyes. These holy apostles, these prophets, are living in the times of fulfillment of ancient prophecies. Remember what God said to Abraham, that in his seed the whole nations would be blessed. And Paul wrote to the Galatians in 3 and 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Remember what God had said through Isaiah, that there would be a light unto the Gentiles. Acts chapter 13 and 47, the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. Galatians 4 and 27, for it is written, Rejoice the barren that bearest not, break forth and cry them that travailest not, for the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Paul's revelation was for one people. Paul was living in the days when that, revel- when that revelation was actually being fulfilled. And of course, as we see in verse 5, this work was being done by the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit was at work in, in his church, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. They had been enlightened. Their eyes had been opened by the events of Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit had descended upon them, and they had greater perception than their forefathers had ever known. So, God gave Paul this unique revelation that God only has one people united in Christ, And it is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring that to pass right before his very eyes. Now, all of this is very well and very interesting. What's it got to do with us? Very important. Because we are the children of Abraham. Through Christ, we are the inheritors of all the promises that God made to his people. Galatians 3 and 7, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3 and 29, And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. We are God's children. Just as much as the Old Testament saints were, we are God's children. 
William Hendrickson quips here, there are no borders, and we would say lodgers. There are no lodgers in God's house, only children. I'm not very good at poetry, but I attempt a couple of stanzas of a poet for, poem for you. And Jesus, we're chosen, we're washed in his blood. Our sins are forgiven at peace with our God. And more, we're adopted, God's sons we appear. And led by the Spirit, we boldly draw near. The world knows us not, but in this we rejoice. To God, we're not strangers. We're sons of his choice. His love from eternity gave us a home where now we are longing in safety to come. To seal our adoption, God sent from on high his spirit through whom, Abba, Father, we cry, and yet with creation, we wait eagerly for final adoption and body set free. Take comfort from this. We who are Gentile believers, who were far from the covenant promises of God, are now fellow sharers in the inheritance fellow partakers of the promises of God and we are fully entitled to all the inheritance of God's adopted sons. So what have we learned this evening? Well, firstly, that if you really want to appreciate the wonderful eternal secret, the mystery of Christ, I think first of all you start by looking at me and looking at yourself, pausing to wonder at the wonderful salvation and redemption of our souls. If God has saved you, you are the beneficiary of his eternal plan and purpose. And you're part of God's single people with all the rights and privileges of his covenant of grace made to his people. In Christ, former sworn enemies have become one elect race, one royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for God's own possession, only brought about through Christ, through the gospel of Christ, preached and heard and accepted by faith alone. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.